Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am Daniel Horn, but this morning I have a word for you from someone else. <clears throat> I, Dr. Martin Luther, wish all lovers of the unshackled art of music grace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. I truly desire that all Christians would love and regard as worthy the lovely gift of music, which is a precious, worthy, and costly treasure given to mankind by God. The riches of music are so excellent and so precious that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. In summa, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts, and spirits. Our dear fathers and prophets did not desire without reason that music be always used in the churches. Hence, we have so many songs and psalms. This precious gift has been given to man alone that he might thereby remind himself that God has created man for the express purpose of praising and extolling God. However, when man's natural musical ability is whetted and polished to the extent that it becomes art, then do we note with great surprise the great and perfect wisdom of God in music, which is, after all, his product and his gift. We marvel when we hear music in which one voice sings a simple melody, while three, four, or five other voices play and trip lustily around the, the voice that sings the simple melody. <clears throat> and this all reminds us of a heavenly dance where all meet in a spirit of friendliness, caress, and embrace. A person who gives some thought to this and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. The word of Martin Luther. <clears throat> now, we are talking about saints and uh, today we are going to be talking about the saint uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. <coughs> now, um, <coughs> there is a tendency to treat saints and composers with perhaps a little bit more honor than they deserve. We put them both on plaster busts. Uh, there is, in fact, a novel by a German named Johannes Wuber uh, called Bach and the Heavenly Choir, in which a French pope named Gregory decides that he wants to canonize Bach. And at the end of the process, Gregory is challenged to answer the question of whether Bach had performed the miracles necessary for sainthood. He responds by picking up a violin and playing one of Bach's partitas for unaccompanied violin. Wuber writes, the Holy Father has made himself his own spokesman for his own candidate. It was as though at that moment theology had been defeated and the belief of the people had won the case on its own. Now this is beautiful, it's lovely, it's what we often imagine when we think of Bach, but Bach would have absolutely despised this notion. He would have considered it anathema and he would have rejected any talk that places him among the great geniuses of our culture. He, in fact, came from a long line of town pipers and musicians who served church, court, and even the coffee house. <clears throat> he viewed himself as a craftsman, a member of a guild. He said of himself, 
anyone can do what I do if they work as hard as I have. Now, I'm not altogether certain that this is verifiably true, but it is something that he genuinely believed. His life was deeply rooted in Lutheran tradition. Above his hometown of Eisenach loomed the Wartburg, the very castle in which Martin Luther had hid from the Holy Roman Empire and spent his time writing his groundbreaking translation of the Bible into German. Apart from a short period where he served the Calvinist prince of Anhalt Kirchen as court composer, Bach spent most of his career in the musical service of the Lutheran Church, and most famously in the city of Leipzig. Here is the Thomaskirche, where Bach served for many years. <clears throat> what did it mean to serve the church as a musician in Bach's day? You know, we heard a lot in the last year about the 100th anniversary of the birth of Leonard Bernstein, and we heard about his glorious, glamorous, uh, celebrity-studded career. Bach's was nothing at all like that. We know this because we actually have the contract that he signed in Leipzig. And it's a contract that was signed with the town council of Leipzig, not with the church. Uh, it begins, their worships, the council of this town of Leipzig, having accepted me to be cantor of the school of St. Thomas, have required of me an agreement as to certain points. Namely, one, that I should set a bright and good example to the boys by a sober and secluded life, attend school diligently and faithfully instruct the boys. Two, and bring the music in the two chief churches of this town into good repute to the best of my ability. Three, show all respect and obedience to their worships the town council and defend and promote their honor and reputation to the utmost. Four, give due obedience to the inspectors and governors of the school. Uh, six, uh, to the end that the churches may not be at unnecessary expense, I should diligently instruct the boys not merely in vocal but instrumental music. In other words, so we don't have to hire ringers to play in the orchestra, the boys will do it. Um, <clears throat> Let's see, what else? Oh, yes. Uh, seven, to the end that good order may prevail in those churches, I should so arrange the music so that it may not last too long and also be in such wise that it may not be operatic, but incite the hearers to devotion, etc., etc., etc. And to all this I hereby pledge myself and faithfully to fulfill all this as is here set down under pain of losing my place if I act against it in witness, etc., etc. Johann Sebastian Bach, given at Leipzig, May 5th, 1723. Uh, this is not a glamorous job, uh, except that it did represent not just uh, being the... Uh, chief musician for these two churches, but it also really represented being chief musician for the town of Leipzig, church and state not being quite so separate as uh, it's become in recent years. Um, and Bach's time in Leipzig was largely devoted to attempting to fulfill his life's goal, which he articulated several times, to create a well-regulated and orderly church music to the glory of God. This was his aim, and towards that aim, he uh, embarked on a very ambitious project once he landed at Leipzig. <clears throat> he started to create a whole series of annual cycles of cantatas uh, to uh, be performed during 
most of the Sundays of the church year, except for uh, Lenten times and others, and also for the special uh, uh, feast days of the church year. So we're talking about roughly 60 new pieces of music every year. It's essentially equivalent to what Martin does when he writes a new sermon for every week. Um, <clears throat> and two, uh, actually uh, three complete cycles and part of a fourth survive. Uh, but perhaps as many as 40% of all of the cantatas that Bach wrote have been lost, either through negligence, accident, the ravages of war, and other historical misfortunes. What are cantatas? The term itself postdates Bach. He would have called them church pieces or even the chief music. They were designed as commentary on the scriptures for the day, functioning either as an introduction to the sermon or an amplification of it. Sometimes, in the case of larger cantatas, the first half would precede the sermon and the second half would follow it. Uh, musically, they range all the way from highly elaborate large-scale works for solo, choral, and instrumental forces to simpler works for a single accompanied singer. Uh, they often incorporate traditional Lutheran chorales whose texts complement the lectionary reading. Now, mind you, all of this was predicated on fitting uh, the cantatas to the lectionary. Uh, the texts, indeed, are very significant. Uh, although Bach often used texts written for him by poets who he trusted, it seems clear that he had an active hand in choosing and shaping these texts. And in doing so, he tells us much about who he was as a man of faith. Um, there are as many assessments of Bach's faith as there are Bach scholars, and many of these assessments are slanted by the personal predispositions and understandings of each individual. There are some who very piously proclaim him as the fifth evangelist and want to turn him into a profound theologian and a man of deep personal faith. Others, for instance, in uh, communist East Germany, wanted to argue that Bach was not a man of faith at all, but was very simply geeking in the church, which is what a musician did in those days. Uh, the truth of the matter is that he certainly was a man of faith. He was an Orthodox Lutheran with a rather extensive theological library in which a breadth of perspectives was represented. Uh, he owned a three-volume study Bible, uh, the so-called Kalof Bible, and his copy of it actually turned up in 1934 in, of all places, Frankenmuth, Michigan. Uh, and it now uh, is kept by the Missouri Synod Lutherans in St. Louis. And it has his signature uh, at the head of each volume. And it has within it a number of underlinings, a number of uh, annotations in the margins. And uh, scholars have proved rather definitively that uh, these markings are clearly from Bach. As just one example, uh, there is a heading uh, in Second uh, Chronicles 5 in this Bible uh, that is uh, called How the Glory of the Lord Appeared After Beautiful Music. Bach underlines the words beautiful music, and after this passage, which describes how the temple filled with cloud after the singers and trumpets and cymbals proclaimed the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, Bach wrote, where there is devotional music, God with his grace is always present. Now, he owned many of Luther's writings, 
and other books by Orthodox Lutheran authors. He also owned quite a few books by important figures in the Pietist movement. Uh, this, by the way, is a shot that I took in the Moravian Church in Lititz, Pennsylvania, and it's the seal of the Moravian Church in America. Um, pietism is a term with many definitions, and in Bach scholarship, it's often used as a pejorative term by people who don't understand the term, don't want to, and in a sense, uh, the word is used very much in the same way uh, that the word uh, evangelical is used in the popular press today. Uh, broadly, it refers to a movement to counter dead, merely doctrinal faith with an emphasis on the importance of a personal encounter with God that deeply affects the emotions. It was not a monolithic movement. Uh, it sometimes moved people to shun worldly pleasures and culture and to avoid certain behaviors such as frivolous games, drinking, and tobacco smoking, uh, the kind of attitude that we would find completely alien in this culture in Wheaton, Illinois, of course. Um, <clears throat> um, at the same time, uh, some with pietist leanings uh, yearned for a deeper, more meaningful devotion to the Lord, but not necessarily by abandoning the culture around them. Uh, pietism was both a movement that crossed confessional lines as in the Moravians, uh, <clears throat> who, by the way, my interest in them comes uh, from the fact that I am uh, descended on several parts of my family tree from the Moravians who founded uh, Bethlehem and Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Um, but uh, <clears throat> pietism was also a movement within Lutheranism itself, and it was a subject of debate within Lutheranism. There were those Orthodox Lutherans who absolutely denied uh, the validity of pietism as a movement. And Bach, in fact, was forced to sign as a statement saying that he indeed denied that pietism was at all uh, acceptable. Um, but uh, nonetheless, we find uh, some interesting things. As we look at the texts that Bach set to music in his cantatas, they are often rich in the highly personal language that is characteristic of the pietists. So one might say that he was very uh, sympathetic to what they were doing. However, when I talk about uh, the old Wheaton Pledge style uh, pietists, uh, Bach doesn't fit particularly well into that paradigm. Uh, there is a poem among his papers which may have been written by him called Edifying Thoughts of a Tobacco Smoker which ends with the lines, and so puffing contentedly on land, on sea, at home, abroad, I smoke my pipe and worship God. Um, <laughs> and he certainly would have lined up uh, with a certain prominent political figure of the last year and would have said, I like beer. Um, in these two respects, he perhaps resembles more somebody like C.S. Lewis than somebody who follows a more restrictive version of pietist teaching and practice. Uh, throughout his career as a church musician, he struggled mightily <coughs> with those who would oppose what they viewed as the extravagances of high art in the life of the church. And he eventually found himself caught <coughs> between the more conservative form of pietism and the increasingly intellectual and revisionist form of Lutheranism that was emerging as a result of 18th century enlightenment thinking. 
And, you know, as I wrote these words, and as I thought about them, I found myself thinking that, in a funny sort of way, Bach's relationship to the theologies of pietism and the Enlightenment uh, bears a certain resemblance to the position that we find ourselves staking out here at All Souls. We certainly want to encourage a deep heart devotion to the Lord that goes beyond formalist theological study and cold, dead orthodoxy. And we certainly oppose reductionist theological liberalism. And yet, by Bach, if you just look around you, you know that we insist that art and liturgy, liturgy do not have to be eradicated as harmful to spiritual health and instead can nurture spiritual growth. So uh, if we find ourselves caught between several different poles, uh, we can kind of recognize there the kind of experience that Bach faced throughout his career. Um, now, it would uh, probably be a good idea to take a look at one of Bach's cantatas, uh, and it would probably be a good idea for me to take a look at my watch. Oh, good, we're doing well. Um, <clears throat> if you had attended a Lutheran church following the, the lectionary of Bach's day last week, uh, you would have found uh, that the scripture, the gospel verse, was about the 12-year-old Jesus going up with his parents to Jerusalem and uh, visiting the temple, and then the parents leaving to go back home, discovering that Jesus is not among them, finding that he is lost, panicking and going back to the temple, and finding that Jesus is there, disputing with uh, the elders and Pharisees and scribes, and uh, he turns to his parents and says, did you not know that I would be here about my father's business? And um, so this is the text for that particular day. By the way, I didn't choose uh, the cantata for this week uh, because uh, for some strange reason, the cantatas that have to do with the wedding at Cana are very dark and very obscure, and they talk more about Jesus not uh, not having his time come quite yet. So I thought this was a more colorful and, and more interesting and perhaps easier cantata to see into as we look at it together. Um, I've chosen uh, cantata number 154, uh, which is called Mein Liebster Jesus ist verloren. My beloved Jesus is lost. And what Bach and his librettist, uh, who is unknown to us in this particular case, do is they essentially turn the text of the, the gospel inside out. And they personalize it in a manner that is really very pietistic in flavor. Uh, we do not have Mary and Joseph worrying about the whereabouts of their boy. But instead, we have the human soul, you, me, all of us, somehow having lost Jesus. Um, we begin, in this case, with an anguished tenor aria whose rhythms suggest an almost operatic sort of tragedy, despite himself, sometimes his music was operatic, and whose harmonies seem to lose themselves along the way. Uh, the tenor sings, perhaps representing Joseph, who knows, but most assuredly representing all of us. My beloved Jesus is lost, bringing despair to my soul. No fortune could touch me more deeply than to lose Jesus. The melody line here is angular. 
It's subject to occasional stops and hesitations as if the music itself is truly lost. Here's a bit of it. I'm sorry, we're not getting... These cantatas uh, usually uh, alternate between arias uh, for solo voice, uh, recitatives, which are passages for the solo voice, uh, which are rhythmically free and uh, follow uh, the pacing of the text uh, more clearly. Um, and uh, there are also um, uh, moments for chorus, uh, often utilizing uh, Chorales. I should mention, by the way, that very often what happens in the texts here is that uh, the text writer will uh, infuse the text with all sorts of uh, references and allusions to other scriptures. Um, I have here a very, very comprehensive book by a scholar named Melvin P. Unger, um, uh, who is known to this congregation. And... Um, he uh, writes that there are a number of allusions in this first aria to uh, the Old Testament and uh, to Job and the Psalms. But uh, it just so happens I was talking about this, uh, this uh, presentation on Friday to my good friend Timothy Larson. And he immediately suggested to me that uh, there's probably also a hint of Mary Magdalene in the garden. Uh, you know, I do not find Jesus and I do not know where they have laid him. So there are all sorts of resonances here. Um, now, uh, eventually uh, we get, let me see if I've got this in order here. Jesus to appear and not to allow our sins to hide us from him. 
Uh, it's a remarkably uh, gentle aria in some ways, and it has kind of a rocking lilt that us, I listen to it, reminds me just a little bit of a cradle song, and perhaps this is Mary uh, asking Jesus to return. Uh, I can't prove it, but uh, it's worth considering as a possibility. expression of loss, uh, we finally hear from Jesus. We are not hearing from the 12-year-old boy. We're hearing from a baritone, a grown man singing with authority uh, that uh, wherever the Father is, I will be working. And did you not know that uh, you would find me in his temple? And uh, here is how that sounds. <laughs> Wisset ihr nicht, dass ich sein muss in dem, das meines Vaters ist? Wisset ihr nicht, dass ich sein muss in dem, das meines Vaters ist? 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 Now, at that point, the tenor returns, <coughs> and he sings, Thanks be to God, this is the voice of my friend. Uh, as Jesus says elsewhere, my sheep know my voice. We experience the inexpressible joy of going through a dark night, coming out the other side of it, and knowing that Jesus is with us. Uh, we are encouraged by the tenor to enter the temple where Jesus reveals himself through word and sacrament. Word and sacrament, of course, are solid foundations of Lutheran orthodoxy. But then the last line of this passage uh, declares something that is very pietist in flavor. If you would worthily partake of his flesh and blood, then you must also kiss Jesus in repentance and faith. I love this passage because it seems to bring both sides of the Lutheran argument together in one uh, very beautiful moment. Dies ist die Stimme meines Freundes, Gott, Lob und Dank. 
getreuer Hort lässt durch sein Wort sich wieder tröstlich hören. Now, um, we go to the next, uh, next to last portion of this cantata. And, um, you know, some of us kind of like to joke about uh, Jesus is my boyfriend, praise and worship music, that is rather, rather common these days. But uh, we have to admit that this thing was not uh, really an invention of the millennial megachurch. Um, when 17th and 18th century pietists write and sing about the love of God for the human soul, the influence of the Song of Solomon is often not very far behind. Uh, there are a number of duets in the cantatas between Jesus and the soul. But at this particular point in uh, cantata 154, what we get is a duet between the alto and the tenor. Again, perhaps Mary and Joseph, perhaps not, but certainly standing in for all of us who uh, sing, Jesus is found and all is well with my soul. Uh, he who loves my soul appears to me in a joyful hour. Jesus, I will never leave you. I will continually embrace you in faith. Uh, it is, like many things in Bach, whether sacred or secular, a dance. Uh, dance is never far away from this music. experience of the gospel text which isn't far removed from the concept of Lexio Divina. We have been brought into the uh, scene uh, of, of the gospel's reading and we are made to make it mean something to us personally. And this is the way many of these cantatas work. These, these pieces are fabulous. The more I listen to them, the more I think you know, we should be listening to cantatas virtually every week just to feed on what they have for us. Now, um, you know, the magnitude of Bach's project and the complexity of the music he wrote uh, required highly trained forces of a sort that, frankly, weren't always at his disposal. Uh, the students, as I've said, served as choristers and instrumentalists. Other musicians were drawn in from college students and townspeople. And the performances of these cantatas, new every week for the first few years of Bach's tenure, must have often been thrown together at more or less the last minute and held together only through the sheer magnetism of Bach's own musicianship and personality. Uh, a contemporary observer writes the following, by the way, here is uh, a manuscript page of one of the cantatas. Um, uh, this observer writes, if only you could see him singing with one voice and playing his own parts, watching over everything and keeping 30 or 40 musicians in time, one with a nod, another by tapping his foot, a third with a warning finger, singing one right note from the top of his voice, another from the middle, and a third from the bottom, noticing at once any mistake while he is playing the most difficult parts, taking precautions everywhere and fixing unsteadiness with rhythm in every part of his body. 
Uh, this must have been something to behold. Uh, it probably wasn't the kind of performance that you expect out of your latest Deutsche Grammophon uh, CD release. Um, <clears throat> he held himself to a very high standard that was difficult to uphold, and as I've already suggested, sometimes equally difficult to defend. It was a standard, as I understand it, not based on ego, but on the conviction that digging as deeply as possible into the art of music was an obligation owed to the God who had created sound and given harmony to the entire cosmos. He would not offer to God that which cost him nothing. And you know, Martin was speaking earlier this morning about the best wine that was offered to those who couldn't appreciate it. And sometimes that kind of language, when we talk about it in artistic terms, sounds like the snobs uh, brushing away the people who don't understand. But I think in a way, Bach felt that it was important that he do what he understood to be digging ever, ever deeper into the gift that God had given him. And whatever people could glean from it, it was so much the better. Uh, at least I, that's, that's the best understanding that I can come to right now. Um, we have not yet talked about Bach's secular music. In fact, he wouldn't have talked about it. Given that he didn't believe in a split between sacred and secular, but simply in music written for varying purposes and to be performed in varying venues, the church, the court, and the coffee house, all treated with the same degree of integrity, commitment, and devotion to God. Um, some of you may have seen, just before Christmas, an article in the New York Times by Michael Marison, who is a Bach scholar and a self-professed agnostic Calvin College graduate, I'm not making this up, who has written a book called Bach and God and frequently explicates Orthodox Lutheran theology for those with little or no understanding of it. His recent article is called, There's More Religion Than You Think in Bach's Brandenburgs, referring to the six Brandenburg concertos. Uh, in it, he writes about these concertos are all about subverting expected social orders, as if they were a series of parables on Jesus' words, the last will be first and the first last. Indeed, much of his music can be seen and has been seen as being conceived with theological dimensions in mind, whether or not they were written for the church. Uh, the equally famous Goldberg variations are no exception. Uh, it has a structure that includes a trinity of trinities built within it, uh, and uh, it points heavenward while at the same time remaining grounded in the world of human experience. I end here with two examples, uh, the very last two moments in the Goldbergs. Uh, first, the last variation, which is a quod libet. What this does is it combines uh, the melody of the theme with uh, popular folk songs in a way that Bach's family, who were all very musical, would have done. They would have gotten together and improvised things where one would sing one melody, the other would sing another, and they'd have a roaring good time. Uh, the, uh, the folk songs here, uh, which are kind of funny given that we're now in variation thir 30 of the uh, Goldberg variations, is uh, I've been away from you for so long, and uh, then the other one's called Cabbage and Beets Have Driven Me Away. <laughs> you go figure. Here's the quote. Earth 
as inspiring and as complex a structure as his. Then, finally, after the Quod Libet, he returns to the opening theme, which takes us to another world entirely. <laughs> I can understand it after years and years of playing Bach and years and years of reading about him is the man himself. He's a man of the earth who smoked his pipe while worshiping God and he also served God in his church. He's not a plaster bust idea of a saint, but a real one. So uh, with any time that we have left, if we have any, uh, any questions, comments, uh, things that come to mind. Yes? Oh no, it's not anti-coffee. It's 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 responding to an anti-coffee uh, uh, campaign in Leipzig. And uh, you know, I, sh I should mention indeed that that there are secular cantatas. There are wedding cantatas. Uh, there are cantatas for uh, the uh, elevation of a new uh, uh, prince or, or duke or what have you. Uh, but and the the, the uh, coffee cantata is one of the closest approaches to opera that we have in Bach. And uh, it, it raises all sorts of warnings about uh, the evils of coffee, but eventually uh, we give up and we celebrate it instead. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes, Dan. Well, <coughs> that's a good question. <coughs> um, you know, uh, when Bach uh, began his service in Leipzig, uh, there was a whole uh, repertoire of cantatas uh, from uh, his predecessor, Johann Kuhnau. And uh, Bach decided that he wanted to replace those with his own work. Uh, some of Bach's cantatas continued to be used after his death. Uh, many of them were given to his son, Carl Philipp Emanuel. Um, some of them just got lost. I mean, uh, the, the popular story is that some of them were given to the local butcher and were used to wrap fish and pork in. Uh, and, and of course, you know, then there are all the, the terrible uh, things that happened to uh, Central and Eastern Europe during World War II. Uh, there are whole libraries of things that are destroyed. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're after Bach's death, there's kind of a Bach underground. Uh, there, there are a number of scholars, uh, scholarly musicians, a number of students of his who keep the flame alive. Uh, we know that Beethoven was able to play all uh, 48 preludes and fugues of the Well-Tempered Clavier by the time he was 13. Same is true of Felix Mendelssohn and his uh, sister Fanny. And uh, often the Bach Renaissance is really dated from I think it was 1929 when Mendelssohn uh, mounted a revival in Leipzig of Bach's St. Matthew Passion. And uh, finally in the mid-1800s, uh, uh, there was a rather complete uh, edition of Bach put together and from there, you know, everything has been more or less accounted for. Does that help a bit? Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? Yes, Rich. Professor. 
Oh, well, there's actually a Bach cantata website, uh, which very helpfully uh, <coughs> gives you uh, the Lutheran lectionary, as it was known in Bach's day, and it shows you Sunday by Sunday uh, which scriptures are being used and which cantatas were written for uh, those moments in, in the church year. So, uh, and, and there are several uh, complete recordings of the cantatas. I should mention, by the way, that the recording that I used this morning is actually a Japanese recording. And uh, astonishingly enough, there's a tremendous amount of interest in Bach in Japan. And uh, there is something about Bach's music that draws people to investigate and very often draws them to investigate the faith. Uh, when I was in New York as a student, uh, I n knew some uh, very fine um, uh, musicians in the area, and one of them told me that her friend, uh, the principal oboist of the New York Philharmonic, uh, had been uh, a member of a group called the Bach Aria Group, which went around performing uh, excerpts from the Bach cantatas. And uh, this man eventually decided that since he was playing this music all the time, he ought to investigate the texts. And as a result from investigating them, uh, became a Christian. So uh, there, there is something that happens. Yes, sir? Am I sir? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's an example of what you said earlier, that Bach, I think you said Bach said this, that wherever there's sacred music, the grace of God is there. Right? Yeah. So sacred doesn't necessarily mean Mm -hmm. God, that the real God shows up. And, and yeah, and, and you know, often when people talk about Bach, they talk about this extraordinary uh, drawing together of tremendous intellectual power and uh, tremendous, uh, you know, intensity on that score. But then there's this uh, emotional quality, this, this heartfelt quality that the, the two uh, heart and head come together in Bach in a way that's not unique among composers, but is, is certainly strongly evident with him. Anybody else? I'm waiting for the bell. Yes. There's obviously a lot of other church composers sure. that we don't really hear about. I know that there were Renaissance composers that yeah. are familiar with. Yeah, well, or even, even, even in, in Bach's case, you know, uh, when Leipzig was hiring, uh, Bach was something like their third or fourth pick. Uh, the guy they really wanted was Georg Philipp Telemann, uh, who was very popular, uh, very well known. He wrote operas, he wrote everything. He wrote in a very uh, laid back, uh, very accessible kind of style. And he wasn't available, and there was somebody else who wasn't available either. And so they find, well, one, one of the uh, people who was in charge of the search committee said something like, well, since the best people aren't available, we'll have to deal with this mediocrity. <laughs> Yeah, but, but there's, there's, there's a real richness. And even among Bach's family, there are many other Bachs who wrote music that's well worth exploring. Uh, certainly his son, Carl Philip Emanuel, his son, uh, Johann Christian, who would have broken his father's heart by becoming Catholic and moving to England, um, and uh, Wilhelm Friedemann, the oldest son. Uh, and there are cousins and uncles and all sorts of uh, Schertel relatives, yeah. Folks, it is compelled as a commit because Professor Horn has an encore performance if you check the schedules. Yes. I, I will be, uh, you know, we've been talking today about somebody who really brought art into the church. Uh, next time we'll be talking about someone who brought the faith into the concert hall. 
this is uh, the French composer, the uh, devout Catholic Olivier Messiaen. Fascinating composer, and we'll talk about him in a few weeks. Thank you.